Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This week's presenting sponsor is Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas and one of the area's true treasures. If you're interested in local history, from the pioneers who settled this area to the American Indians who lived here long before that, you can learn so much from the collections at PPHM. Even better, there are a couple of really fun community events coming up at the museum, so stick around to learn more. This episode is also sponsored by Kara Hendricks, financial advisor with Edward Jones. If saving for retirement is something you always seem to be thinking about but not actually doing, you need to talk to Kara. She specializes in high-quality, tailored investments for investors of all ages and all kinds of financial means, and she works to treat clients like she would want to be treated. To get started, call Kara Hendricks at 806-358-8346. Edward Jones, Making Sense of Investing, member SIPC. Today's guest is Laura Escobar. Laura is the executive director of Amarillo Area CASA, CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates, and I suspect that a lot of listeners are like me. They've heard of CASA, they know that it has to do with kids, but they don't really know what it means to be one of those special advocates. So we dig into that. And we call this area West Texas, but Laura grew up even further west, in Kermit, Texas, and then in El Paso. Now, she's been in Amarillo around a decade and, as a social worker, has a really fresh perspective on the needs and challenges faced by Amarillo's residents, especially kids. So here's Laura Escobar. Laura Escobar, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks yeah. for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Good. I'm glad you're excited. I, I know you've listened before and kind of know what to expect. But before we talk about CASA, which I'm sure we'll get to at some point, sure. that's what you do, but... Uh, I'd like to hear your story. So tell me how you ended up in Amarillo in the first place. Yeah. So I was born in Kermit, Texas, which is West Texas. Okay. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I've heard of it, but I have no idea where it is in yes. relation to anything else. So, so Permian Basin area. So okay. we're about 45 miles um, west of Odessa. Okay. So Odessa, and then there's Kermit, Pecos, that kind of area. Got it. So Old Town, that's kind of what was going on in the 80s. It was a big old town, um, kind of took a dip in the 90s. So um, my dad was a football coach. Okay. And so this was kind of during the Friday Night Lights era. Right. have seen all of that. It's very much what it was like growing up in that small town. Yeah. What size is Kermit? Um, now, I don't know. It's it's grown a lot. Has it? Okay. It has because the oil is back. And so it's, it's really big now. I'm, I don't remember. I mean, I was little, but... Probably medium-sized school. Okay. Um, Not very big. Definitely smaller than Odessa Midland area. But um, lived there till the beginning of fourth grade, and we moved to the El Paso area. All right. Finished out my childhood there. We actually lived right outside of El Paso in a town called Clint, um, which is more what they call the valley. So it's on the east side of the town, and it is kind of a farming, ranching community. Um, my best friend's dad owned a pecan farm. My husband, now his family owned a dairy there. So very much an agriculture type little town. Okay. Right outside of the big city. So uh, spent, um, you know, high school there, all of my childhood there, and then graduated high school. And I applied to one school um, because I was that's all I wanted to do. So I applied to Texas A&M University, right. and that was 11 hours away. 
And by the grace of God, (laughs) I got in and left 11 hours away, the baby of the family. I have two older brothers, so I'm the baby. And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I went to school there. I graduated in 2002. What did you study? I studied community health. Okay. I was so certain my, my plan all along was to be a nurse. And so um, my first semester there at Texas A&M, I was a biomedical science major. And that first semester, I was like, yeah, no, that's way too much science, organic chemistry, that kind of stuff was way over my head. So I switched to community health, which is similar to human services, social work, but it it just has a different name. Um, So we studied how to develop programs and evaluate programs and and things of that nature. But all along, I was going to go to nursing school. That was kind of my plan. Um, Before we get to that, tell me why A&M, because you could have gone to nursing school Anywhere, you know, probably in El Paso, someplace closer. Yeah. You know, 11 hours away might as well be in California, you know, from El Paso to, oh, yeah. you know, Bryan College Station. So, so tell, me, tell me why the draw at A&M. So we, we do have a legacy there. My okay. grandfather um, was graduated there in the 50s. And at the time when I was going, I have a lot of cousins who were stair-stepped. And I had three cousins there. Um, that were all three years older than me, and I had a brother that was going to vet school there. Okay. And so... So you had that family connection. I had family there, and I went down my senior year to visit with my cousin who was there, and I fell in love with it. Got to go to my first Aggie football game and Midnight Yell, and that was it. I was... It's an immersive culture there for a student. Oh, yes, for sure. I was hooked, and so I... My mom thought I was crazy. I, I didn't apply anywhere else. Um, I was like, nope, this is what I want to do. This is where I'm going to go. And um, it worked out. Right. So, yeah. Okay, so I interrupted you. So go, go no, back to your to your story You're then. fine. So I went, got my bachelor's, and immediately applied to nurse school. Didn't get in. Very competitive there um, at Blinn. And so I thought, okay, well, this isn't what I'm supposed to do. So I decided I'm going to go ahead and get my master's. So I went on and got my master's in public health, really not knowing kind of what I was going to do after that still had nursing in the back of my mind. Right. It's a very broad field, yes. right? I mean, you you could go in a lot of different directions from oh, yeah. from there. Absolutely. So, um, and along that way, you know, I, I think I mentioned to you, I met my husband in the fifth grade or fourth grade when I moved to El Paso. We actually started dating air quotes there um in, in the seventh grade in oh. the seventh grade all right yeah which, you waited till you were old enough then. yes um which you know dating in the seventh grade yeah. we didn't have cell phones then so social media that was non-existent Just means your parents had to drive you somewhere right? yes yeah. yes so he actually ended up moving to college station later into my college years and we got married um my last semester of grad school so and he went to the AM fire school so you know we had kind of established ourselves we really thought we were going to stay there okay so we I finished my master's wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with that but got a job at the hospital there doing tobacco cessation for right. the hospital which is very interesting so what what does that mean so doing it for the hospital is that helping patients yes. with it Okay. So I was in charge, so there are requirements. I don't know if it's still a thing now, but at that time that anybody who came into a hospital, if they had smoked cigarettes or tobacco products or had consumed tobacco products, so chew, dip, that kind of stuff, within the last 12 months, the hospital had to provide them with education about 
how to quit and what that does to their body. So I am straight out of school. I've never smoked a day in my life. And here I was doing this for the hospital. Not um, the friendliest audience, oh, I would imagine. They don't no. they don't want somebody telling them, No. here's what you should stop doing. Yeah, you know, somebody who is very young and never smoked a day in their life, and I'm supposed to help them kind of through that process. But it was interesting. I learned a lot um, doing that. A couple of years into that, maybe five years or so, my husband, maybe not even that long, four years, he decided he wanted to go to tech, to Texas Tech. And so I said, okay, let's go. Hmm. So he went to Texas Tech to finish his degree there, and I followed. And we were there for two years while he finished his degree. At that point, wasn't really sure where we were going, but he ended up getting a position here in Amarillo at the Bureau of Land Management okay, and a master's degree program. So it's kind of a program they have together. And so he said, what do you think about Amarillo? I had never been to Amarillo, maybe traveled through here Mm -hmm. as a child going to Colorado or, you know, not really sure. Never been to Amarillo, had never, just didn't know anything about it. And I said, oh, okay, well, let's, let's give it a shot. And so two years after being in Lubbock, we moved up here with our two kids and here we are. We're still here and still loving it. When would, when was that? So what we year? moved here in 2010. Okay. Do you remember, I mean, you, you mentioned that as a kid, maybe you had driven through Amarillo, you know, places like Lubbock, you know, we know the towns around Lubbock, Lubbock knows Amarillo and the towns of the Panhandle, mm-hmm. but like Midland Odessa area and further than that, I don't want to presume that Amarillo, you know, people have any knowledge of, of what our city's like. I mean, do you literally not really remember much or had, you know, no idea of what Emerald really was like until that point. No idea. No idea. I knew the George Strait song. Okay. I knew Amarillo was a place, but I didn't know anything about Cadillac Ranch or the Big Texan or Palo Duro. I mean, what a, a place we have here with yeah. Palo Duro. I didn't know any of that, honestly. I and so you, no you arrived here as an adult and with a family. So mm-hmm. I'd like to hear what your impressions were of the city you know, once you got here, once you started to figure your way around, I mean, what did Amarillo feel like to you 10 years ago? You know, it was very welcoming. I will say that. Um, The people are extremely nice, very generous here. I will say that I probably um, kind of have a different perspective because my first job here was uh, as an investigator for CPS. Ooh, okay. So... So you didn't. In, you weren't. Yeah. Uh, you weren't looking at the best parts of Emerald, right. most likely. Yeah, I was interacting daily with people who were in crisis, and so, you know, I really kind of got thrown in to the city in a different view. But being here now, having my kids established in the community, we actually live in Canyon, but both my husband and I work here at Amarillo. Okay, I can't imagine at this point living anywhere else. You know, I want my kids to grow up here. We really like the roots that we've established, and it's a great little big city, I guess you could say. There's enough to do, mm-hmm. um, but it's still a small town feel. You know, you can still have that small town uh, feeling. So yeah, it's it, it's been interesting. I want to ask you about the CPS aspect of your career as a mom, you know, who came here with, with a young family, mm-hmm. and then you're interacting with families and children who are in crisis psychologically emotionally i can imagine that that's really hard i mean was was that something that 
you had to find a way to compartmentalize your work stuff and then leave it behind when you go home. I and mean, what, sure. what was that process like? It was very hard. Um, I did have small kids. I mean, they weren't even in school yet. They were pretty small. And so, you know, pretty young family and dealing with some very serious issues. That's what I was dealing with at work. There were days that I would drive home and just cry, mm-hmm. knowing what these families were struggling with, some of the battles that they were up against. And honestly, it kind of made me very hypervigilant <laughs> to things. Um, I still am, and I think that's because that's the world I'm in. But I'm very hypervigilant. Sometimes my husband has to say, hey, not everybody is this way. Right. Or, you know, he just kind of has to bring me down sometimes, so that's a good balance. But absolutely, it is It is such a hard job. And I think the hard part about CPS is that sometimes the only time you hear about them is because of the bad stories. Right. But there are a lot of good things. Well, they, it's, it's, they yeah. took my, my kids away from me as opposed to we rescued kids out of a really bad situation. Right. right. So there's a good and a bad way to look at it. Oh, yeah. There are some incredible people that work there doing incredible things every single day and putting it all out on the line. Sometimes their safety and then going home and raising their families and doing things like that. But all we hear is a negative stuff. Mm-hmm. But I will say, and I say this all the time when I do presentations, if you know a social worker or somebody working at CPS, give them a hug, buy them some coffee, take them out to lunch, just say thank you. Um, they don't have an easy job. Um, they're always going to be the bad guy. And they their hearts are there in the right place. And they're just doing the best that they can. Okay. So it was a very hard job. How long did that job last? I was there for a year. Okay. So not, not very long, but long enough to really, really learn a lot a lot about people and things that I really had no idea were going on. Right. So it's And things that probably were not specifically unique to Amarillo, but you're right. going to find in any city of this size, any Absolutely. group of people living in one place, I mean, you're going to have those kinds of problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. What happened after that first year? So it was really hard on our family just because of having small children and the demands of that job. So I started looking and I found this place called CASA, had never even heard of that either, but started researching them. Like, what did they do? What was what was their organization about? And found out that they work with children in foster care, um, but on the nonprofit side, on the, you know advocating for them. Mm-hmm. And so I gave it a shot and applied and got hired on in 2011 um, as a volunteer supervisor. And so I was working with volunteers okay. who were advocating for children in foster care. And I've been there ever since. I've been here ever since. Have changed positions, but haven't looked back. And I absolutely love it. It is very challenging. You know, we're dealing with the same individuals and families in crisis, mm-hmm. um, but we get to interact in a different way. And um, just really, there is no other organization like CASA. And so that's kind of what led me to here. I just felt like. I was really able to work for the child okay. versus um, a system. Right. Because sometimes when you get in those big state organizations, very bureaucratic, it can get very muffled. Um, and I liked that we could just get to the heart of the matter here. That's what really appealed to me. So I want to I ask you about some specifics about what CASA does, because it occurs to me, just as someone who has a lot of contact you know, with the nonprofit world, I hear about CASA all the time. You mm-hmm. have, it's a pretty visible organization. Yeah. But 
unless you really dig in, like it's it's kind of complicated to explain what it is, why it matters, yes. you know, what happens if you're a, one of those advocates. Yeah. So treat me like somebody who doesn't know anything and, and tell me, which, you know, may very well be true, um, <laughs> but, but tell me why CASA is important for a kid, for a yeah. child in that sort of situation. So kind of the backstory behind CASA was in the 1970s, um, there was a judge in Seattle and he was hearing family cases. And what he noticed was that every single case coming before him was getting the same exact plan. So your kids get removed. Here's your plan. You have a year. Let's see what happens. What we know is that every family is different and every family has different motivators, different support systems, different connections. And so a one size fits all doesn't work for families in crisis. Okay. Um, and so what he decided was he wanted to bring in somebody, just a community member that could come in. Their only interest was that child and um, they did not, they were neutral. So they had no ties to either side, okay. but to find so out to like the family, the right. child's biological family or like family, a foster family, the state agencies. Right. Um, and he said, you know, I just want, I want you to go out there and I want you to talk to everybody, gather the facts, come back and tell me what you think is going on and what you think is in the child's best interest. So they started that program, and what they started to see was more results for those families. Um, not because one agency wasn't doing what they were supposed to, but because they didn't have the time. And so a CASA volunteer typically has one case, so that could be one child or it could be a family group or siblings. And so they just had more time to dedicate, and a lot of times volunteers come to us from all different walks of life. And so they're not just social workers. Um, a lot of them are stay-at-home moms, retired teachers. They're okay. professionals who are, you know, working full-time. But they have different backgrounds, and so they think of different things that sometimes when we are in this every day, we may not think of. And so that's a really interesting perspective for them to have. And so they did that. And it worked. And so people started copying that model all over the United States. And so CASA programs, I think, are in 48 states. Okay. And in Texas, we have 72 CASA programs across the state of Texas. Every CASA program covers um, different counties. So in Amarillo, we're actually in our 25th year, and we cover seven counties. And so we're responsible for serving children within those seven counties. But we can only serve as many children as we have volunteers to serve. Right. So the volunteer experience, and I always tell people this, it is very different than your normal, you know, once a month I'm going to go and do this activity. Sure. Um, we ask a lot of our volunteers, and it's a very specific person who can do that, because we ask them to commit, you know, eight to ten hours a month, right. um, at least a year. We want them to stay with the, that case the entire time they're in foster care or that child. And... They go out and they visit with the child. They get to know them. Um, they get to know the biological parents and what's going on with them. They get to know the foster parents. Um, they talk to teachers, therapists, doctors, attorneys, anybody involved in that case. And they actually go to court for them. So every three months to six months, our volunteers are in court. And they're letting the judge know, hey, here's what I see. Here's mm -hmm. what I found out. Here's what the child wants. Um, and that helps the judge make those decisions on that case because the judge can't be there. Right. And a CPS worker, you know, could have a caseload of, of 
you know, 30 cases and each case has X amount of children and X amount of parents and therapists and one caseworker. And so I think we did a map one time to kind of figure that out. And it was close to like 600 contacts that that caseworker would have to make in a month. So it's almost an impossible job. And, you know, the state has done a lot of work over the last couple of years to help with that and reduce caseloads. But there is something about one dedicated individual who is not paid. Yeah. They are not paid to do that, and they do so much. I, I could tell you stories all day long about what these volunteers are doing, the extra mile that they're going. It's just, it's been really, really incredible. I'd like to, to give you an opportunity to tell one of those stories without getting into the details of right. what the child is or any, anything identifying, but to put something concrete on the idea of this is how a, a, a CASA can help a child in a specific situation. Like this is the impact, you know, sure. whether it's one case and it, and it may be a case that takes a year or something, but like what's a real world example of where that advocacy really has an impact on a child and what it looks like? Yeah. So I think one of my favorite stories, and again, we are very, you know, I think it's hard for CASA sometimes because we do have a lot of confidentiality yeah, issues. So sometimes we don't get to share as much as we would love to, but we had a case and it was an older child And she was placed out of region, so I believe in the Houston area. And she had been in care already, I think, for about two years. And had seen people in the Houston area, CASA volunteers, going in to visit other kids. And she said, hey, I want one of these. Hmm. So she actually requested a CASA herself. So she contacted her attorney. Um, The attorney brought it up in court, and CASA got appointed. So pretty quickly after the volunteer got assigned to the case, she started um, researching and digging through this case and found out that there had been a family member, particularly a grandparent, that had been involved uh, before she came into care. But there was some stuff on this grandparent's criminal history from, you know, back in the, I believe, the early 70s or 60s that hadn't really been investigated and kind of fallen through the cracks and prevented her from being placement. Okay. So the volunteer really took the time and started investigating and interviewing and gathering information, um, got all the different parties involved and said, hey, here's what I found out. Is this something, you know, that we can work through, that we can do? This grandmother has raised other grandchildren. She works for a state agency. She wants to be involved. And the child wants to be with her. And so we brought all of that to the table. It took about nine months Hmm. um, after we got appointed and called a special hearing grandmother came down and child went home with grandma that day. Wow. So a child that potentially the the outlook or the the goal was in, you know, for that child to age out at 18. Sure. Which, which in the foster care system uh, is no guarantee of anything, no, but you know, the, a lot of trouble. So stats for kids that age out of the foster care system, I think 60% of them will be homeless within the first week. Yeah, it's incredible. It it's just we don't do a good job of raising children. That's not what foster care was meant to do. And so you can never replace family. And so nine months after a CASA volunteer being appointed, this child had been in care for years before then. Um, We were able to find a permanent family member for her to go home with. And um, she's doing great. We still have some contact with her. So things like that happen all the time. And it's not because... Um, somebody at an agency didn't want it to happen. There, there just wasn't enough time for them to do the legwork 
to make that happen. And so our volunteers are very, very dedicated. And once they put their mind to it, they're going to figure out a way. I would imagine that, that some volunteers who hear that or potential volunteers think, well, you know, I, that's great. I care about children. I've got time, but I'm not an investigator sure. or I don't know the legal system or I don't feel comfortable talking to a judge in a courtroom setting. You know, tell me about like what kind of characteristics or personality traits or experience, any of that stuff makes someone good as a CASA. Yeah. So that's a common fear. We hear that all the time. People want to know, well, I don't know about this or that. But I think the way our system is, our program is set up is that, you know, we have a very extensive training that our volunteers have to go through. Um, we pair them with a volunteer supervisor. We have very tenured staff here and they walk alongside a volunteer the entire time. So you're never alone. Mm-hmm. We would never put anybody out there by themselves. They're always going to be with you. But really, if you have the heart and are committed to follow through, that's what we need. We can teach you and guide you and coach you on on the other things. And every case is so different. So we really try to match our volunteers to even our supervisors to the cases. So depending on how much time someone has, what their interests are, we know that our guys, our men, men are investigators. Men kind of want to get a case that they can really get in there, investigate, be Mm -hmm. hands-on. And so we try to match our volunteers to cases the best we can. There's no perfect case, but we want it to be a fit for the child and the volunteer because we want it to be long-term. We want a consistent person that's going to be with them. So um, no worries on that. And every case is different. We have volunteers that just, you know, they meet with the child every month. They go to their choir concert. They may send them a letter. So it's all different, and, and we can find something that works for pretty much most individuals if they have the commitment and the time and the passion to do it. In working with so many volunteers who do have that commitment and do have that passion, like what have you learned about the community here, the, the people who are willing to give so much, you know, to a kid that they don't know, yeah. a kid that they don't owe anything really, yeah. other than this is, this is our community. I mean, what have you learned about Amarillo people? Such a generous place. It is a very generous place. I think almost every week I get a call from a church group or an individual or, um, you know, just random things, people that say, I want to help or my business wants to help. What can we do? Do you have any events? Do you have any needs? We get that all the time. Very, very generous community. Um, I think the community needs more education mm-hmm. about what's going on, um, which is something CASA takes very seriously, that I take very seriously, but very generous. When we put out a need, so let's say on Facebook, we're like, hey, we got a kiddo who needs this, this, and this. I guarantee by the end of the day, we will have responses for it. Hmm. Um, that's just the community that we have. People want to take care of people. Sometimes they just don't know how. They don't know how to get involved. And so that's our job is to kind of help them with that part. When you think about those needs and, and some of the issues that you know are driving these crises in families and kids in foster care, I mean, is there anything that you can identify as, as maybe specific in Amarillo, maybe you know something that is... Uh, is more prevalent here than other parts of the state. Is there anything unique to the situations here? As far as um, leading families into crisis, is that? Yeah. Yeah. So honestly, what I'm hearing, I, you know, so I serve as a regional rep for Texas CASA. So I, I meet with 
leaders, Texas CASA or CASA program leaders from all over the state. And it's pretty unanimous that drugs, so substance abuse, particularly meth, is the highest reasons that we see children coming into care. And not Um, just in Amarillo, not just in Amarillo. That is statewide. That is a problem. I think that's a problem everywhere. Um, You know, with substance abuse comes lots of things, comes lots of secondary issues, trauma, neglect, um, sexual abuse. There's lots of things that come with that. I think we see a lot of families that the parents have been through trauma themselves. Hmm. And that trauma was never dealt with as a child. Um, They become parents and they don't know any different and they've never dealt with their trauma. And some of them are coping with those things through substance abuse, through the drugs. And it just truly is that cycle that we hear about. It, It very much happens. And kind of what we talk about is that it is so much easier to heal a child than it is to heal an adult. Hmm. And so we want to reach these kids. Uh, We want to reach them now. We want them to know that, you know, they are worthy. Um, There are things that can be done. There are trauma-focused approaches to helping these kids. We want to help families. You know, we want to make sure families are getting the services that they need. Because if we don't heal the, the parents as well, children will never go home. Sure. You know, and so it is It is a very complex... Right. There's a lot of parts that, yes. that need to be fixed before oh my gosh. So everything many. works. Yeah. You know, you, you grew up in another part of Texas. You went to school in another part of Texas. You just kind of finally ended up here. Does, mm-hmm. does Amarillo feel like home to you at yeah, this point? Yeah, it does. I think, uh, you know, El Paso will always hold a very special place uh, to me because that's there's just a lot of memories. It's a very um, unique culture there. Yeah. And I think when we moved to Amarillo in 2010, we were kind of like, okay, well, you know, we'll go for a couple of years, you finish your master's, and then we'll figure out where we want to go. Right. I think ultimately we thought we would move back to the College Station area. But now that we've been here, it's like, mm, I don't think so. This is, this is, you know, this feels right and this feels good and comfortable. And we love that our kids are here and they have such strong relationships in the community and in our church. So, yeah, this it really does. This is this is where we want to be. And this is home. This week's episode is sponsored by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, located in Canyon on the campus of West Texas A&M University. Now, I'm a huge fan of this museum. It's the largest history museum in Texas. And one of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast is to create a record of life here in Amarillo and in Canyon during this moment in time. Well, Panhandle Plains has been doing that actively since it started back in 1921. And what you may not know is that the museum itself is a nonprofit. So the university helps with things like insurance and maintaining the buildings, but the museum is primarily funded by membership and donations and, well, special events. And one of those is coming up in just a few days. It's a murder mystery dinner backed by popular demand. It's on November 1st and 2nd, this Friday and Saturday. So you can enjoy a great meal and try to, you know, solve a murder and stuff in one action-packed night featuring the West Texas A&M Improv Agents. Get tickets for the murder mystery at panhandleplains.org or you can call 806-651-2242. And go ahead and put the museum's Christmas open house on your calendar. It's December 6 and 7, so just another month or so away. Learn more at panhandleplains.org. 
Okay, I'm back with Lara Escobar, the executive director of CASA here in Amarillo. Uh, Lara, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job as my guest is to answer those in okay. whatever amount of detail you want to. I'll start with the first one, and, and these are all questions I've asked of, of most other guests. What's your favorite kind of Amarillo weather? I would say fall for sure. Okay. But I would say really, except for winter, I'm not a big winter fan. The fact that we don't have humidity here mm-hmm. is wonderful. So I will take one of our hottest days over a day in South Texas with humidity. Okay. Oh, any day. And I can compare it to, you know, the Bryan College Station area. But, like, what was West Texas and Kermit, that area, what was that like oh, yeah. in terms? Was it Desert. similar to Amarillo climate-wise? Yeah, wise, yeah for sure. Definitely um, not quite as – well, we did have wind, but um, definitely desert, dry. Mm-hmm. So Bryan College Station is so humid. Yeah. Oh, it's miserable in the summer. So Amarillo on a hot day, I'll take that any day with no humidity. All right. What's your favorite restaurant in Amarillo? El Teavon. All right. For sure. That's been mentioned by a surprising <laughs> number of guests, or maybe not a surprising number of guests, you know, given how good it is. So. Yes. I am, I love street tacos, mm-hmm. tacos in general, and I am kind of a salsa snob. Mm-hmm. So I'm very particular about that. And I will say, hands down, they have the best for Thank sure. You. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a, a preferred El Teavon? Is it the. I go to the one. Tascosa one of, or the original yeah, one? Off of Tascosa okay. is usually where we go. What does this area have too much of? I mean, just because of the line of work I'm in, I'm going to say we have too many families in crisis. All right. And I, that's, that's a very, I think that could come with a lot, but I just see it. I see it day yeah. in and day out. And I think we have too many families in crisis. I don't know the answer to all of it, but it, it, it certainly pulls on my heart every day to know what, what, our, what some of our families are going through. I know that there are a lot of factors, you know, that, that lead into those crises. And I, I know you mentioned meth, you know, as one of them is like, it, are, are the solutions to that cultural? Are they economic? I mean, do, do you have any idea of what's driving that and, and how like society wide or Amarillo yeah. wide, maybe we can address some of that stuff. I think there's a lot of, of things behind that. I think certainly when we see, you know, times where there's a lot of economic stress, we see more abuse. Like um, a lost job yeah, or yeah, struggling, that, you know, to yes, make ends meet. Yeah, uh, stress is high. It causes tensions to rise. People can lose their temper. Um, summertime, you know, sometimes that's a very stressful time for parents. So that's a factor. I think just there, the drug issue is so rampant and so big that probably more than people know mm-hmm. that the things that follow and associate with that um, are just really hard to overcome. And I don't think we have enough services for that in our area. Okay. I, I know we don't, we don't have enough. I, I hear it from the parents that we're working with, you know, there's not enough services to meet those needs of the, of the families that we have. But man, I think there's a lot of factors. I think as a society, um, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be that person that says, "Oh, our phones and the games." But you got to think that some of that plays into it. I think there's always been abuse, right? Right. But I think over time we've kind of lost that personal connection and the value of the personal connection. So I think all of that plays into it. I think there's so much. It's it's hard to answer that yeah, well, question. I mean, clearly, yeah. that it's, it's complicated. Um, yeah. What does this area not have enough of? I'll give you two answers. One, just because of what I do, 
We don't have enough CASA volunteers. So okay. that's my shameless plug. Um, I'll allow it. <laughs> the other thing, you know, I was thinking about that question. I think, and, and this could be just because I haven't looked enough, but I think we don't have enough of places for adult couples. So like above, you know, mid thirties and up and up. Okay. For entertainment. Like we need more things to do. You know, it's not a club. I don't want to go to right. a club. Um, I just want like a cool place to hang out, like on a date night, comedy club, okay. you know, things like that. I think we need more entertainment options for older adult couples. Okay. And I, I think we're making some progress yeah. with places like Esquire Jazz Bar on yes. Folk and those kinds of things. But yeah, you're right. We need more. Yeah. And we need to catch up with some other cities, you yes. know, that, you know, maybe are, are a few years ahead of us in that way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you go to like downtown Fort Worth and you kind of see some of that stuff, which are downtown. I will tell you, when I started here in 2011, mm-hmm. seeing the progression, because right, we're downtown. Right, you're right in the thick of it here oh, downtown, yeah. yeah. We are right in the middle. It's been amazing. I love it. I love a downtown feel and atmosphere. Um, so they really have done a lot. So kudos to the city for making that a priority. I think it's important. Um, but yeah, I'd love to see more, more ad- adult type activities where it's not just, you know, a club setting. Yeah. I think thinking back to, you know, you've been here almost 10 years, I guess, downtown it's in that 10 years, it's gone from like a sleepy place at night where mm-hmm. everything shuts down at 5 PM yeah. on a weeknight to a place that people actually are coming back here, you know, for yeah. dinner and for events that happen after that, the ballpark, everything else. It's, yes. that's totally different. Yes. Oh, way different. You know, we had a meeting last week and the person was coming here and he said, well, we'll, we'll you know, we'll, the staff can go to lunch. I'm like, well, we don't have to drive anywhere. There's cool places right here. We can walk over. And I love being able to just walk somewhere, mm-hmm. like coffee shop, you know, places to eat. So yeah, I love that. But definitely you know i think we can always do more yeah sure how do you describe amarillo to people outside this area maybe to your family back home or people you knew uh, at a and m when you're talking about where you live where you work now what do you say about it yeah i say um it's a very family oriented place very um community minded it's always windy Always. Um, We went to Possum Kingdom for the 4th of July and we were sitting outside and it was, it was so still. And I, I, I told my family, I said, where is the breeze? I said, in Amarillo, we always have a breeze. Mm -hmm. So we're never, you know, just miserable. There's always a breeze, but it's kind of like a little hidden place up here. There's lots of cool things to do. Um, we've got the shops in Canyon. We've got downtown Amarillo. Um, we've got Palo Duro. Like there's just so many cool places that people don't really realize are here. So just a cool place to be. Speaking of Palo Duro Canyon, when was the last time you went? Yeah. So we went uh, right before summer. All right. Uh, went down, um, had some friends in town, did the uh, lighthouse trail. Yeah. Um, so got to carry my four-year-old on my shoulders for most of that. But At least it's yeah. relatively flat in terms <laughs> yes. of the trail till the end. Till the yeah, end, it's... which is fun. But yeah, we were there not too long ago. Okay. And actually, so my husband works for the Bureau of Land Management, and he manages the crossbar. Okay. And so they're working on opening up a bunch of trails. Right. And which stuff. may end up being one of those places that we talk about going yes. from Amarillo, you know, in addition yeah. to the canyon. That's the hope, um, because it's also a really cool place. And so, yeah, that it would be really cool for that to be another spot, another yeah. tourist destination, another place for people in Amarillo to, to go bike and hike and camp and do all that. It's one of those stuff. places that 
people if people have not been there it's surprising what the terrain's like oh, and yeah. that there's there's hills and there's valleys and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's not all just flat. No, it's like a little mini Paladuro there. It's certainly not as grand like as the canyon, but um, it's really cool. And so keep your eyes peeled for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, uh, so I, I want to see if I can put you in a, a certain team, pack sack or Totem. Can I say Allsup's? You can say Allsup's. <laughs> I'm going to say Allsup's. All right, you're going to take the small town approach. Then. Yes, for sure. Okay. I mean, you can't be an Allsup's chimichanga. Um, <laughs> you, you'll proudly own up to uh, to that being a, a dietary Absolutely. staple. Absolutely. Yes. I'm going to say also. There are people that treat that as a joke, and there are people that actually really love it as a comfort food. You know? It is no joke. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to meet you on the uh, on the no joke side yes. of Allsup's burrito. Yes, so. for sure. Okay. What's your favorite building in downtown Amarillo? You actually work at a building in downtown I Amarillo. Do. So. I I mean, obviously, I love our office. We're in the Eagle Center building, and it's a it's a we have been blessed to have this space. And um, it's a unique building that's got some really cool kind of mid-century modern features yeah, and stuff to it. It uh, does. It's got a vault, a big vault in the basement. Obviously, there's nothing in there anymore. But um, yeah, it's a really cool. It's a really cool space. I think really the whole Polk Street. I love that atmosphere. I love the lights. I don't really have a specific building outside of here, but just Polk Street in general. I just okay. love the vibe. So, Laura, that concludes my eight straight questions. I like to close by asking a, my guests to endorse something. So, what's something that you would want Amarillo people to know about or to experience? I'll say foster care. Okay. One of the things we started doing this year was we know that not everybody can be a CASA volunteer. Not everybody can be a foster parent. But there is some way that everybody can get involved. So, whether you do CASA fostering, respite, you just want to donate some money or some some goods, some blankets, hygiene products, there is something that everybody can do. And so I really want to encourage people to step out of their comfort zone. Okay. Kind of, it gets a little messy. Yeah. Sometimes we don't like the messy, but we need, it's necessary. Um, and really explore and say, what could I do? Where would I fit in? Not can I fit in, but where? And find that place. And if you need help finding it, we'll help you. You know, we, we are not greedy. We obviously want volunteers, but we want people, good people in these in these families' lives and these children's lives. So I endorse getting involved in foster care. Obviously, I think CASA is a great organization and we need more volunteers, um, but we want to find the best fit for everybody. So that that's my endorsement. All right. Laura Escobar, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And that concludes the show. I want to say thanks, first of all, to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and to Kara Hendricks with Edward Jones for sponsoring this episode. Thanks also to Lara for the interview. If you want to learn more about CASA, visit amarillocasa.org. That's C-A-S-A. And it just so happens that the organization is hosting a Sixth Street Crawl and Heart of CASA art gallery event this Saturday. So you can look those things up. Thanks to Angelina Marie for editing the episode, and of course, thanks to my executive producers. These include Daniel Davis, Corey Burns, Katie Linger, Jennifer Callahan, Chris Zelda, Josh Wood, Neil Nossiman, Ryan Pennington, Patrick Burns, Wes Reeves, Wilson Lemieux, and Jason Burr. All of those good folks support the show through patreon.com slash And if you lesson every week, if you enjoy the show, if you find yourself talking about it or looking up the guests, whatever... 
you can support the show too. So go to the Patreon page and uh, see if there's a level of support that fits what you want to do. If you do, I appreciate it. If you don't do it, I still appreciate you. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 109. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.